Hello, good people. This is Sister Julia Walsh, and you're listening to Messy Jesus Business. Welcome to The Mess. I'm here with Sister Eileen McKenzie, who is a Franciscan Sister of Perpetual Adoration. She has ministered as a nurse, a researcher, an acupuncturist, and in community leadership for the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration as presidents. Her ministries have happened throughout the United States and West Africa, and for the past 15 years, she has been centered in the Upper Midwest, serving in St. Paul, Minnesota, and more recently in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Sister Eileen and I have been friends for many years, and we're members of the same religious community, and it's a joy to have her here. Sister Eileen, welcome to Messy Jesus Business. Well, thank you, Sister Julia. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so grateful that I have this opportunity to talk with you. This will be so much fun. And right before we started the recording, you were talking about how, in many ways, I wouldn't be doing this ministry of podcasting and amplifying other people's voices and views without your support in my life and in my ministry. So thank you for that. And as members of the same religious community (laughs) who have worked together and left together and shared life together for a good while, I do know you pretty well. (laughs) You do. It's true. (laughs) Yeah. My listeners, our listeners may be interested to know how you became a Franciscan sister of perpetual adoration and found your voice and discovered your passion for justice. Well, I believe that my vocation as a sister was kind of also my vocation of awakening to justice issues and systemic justice issues. I'm a cradle Catholic, a good Irish, you know, Catholic background. And we were all always, you know, encouraged to just to be grateful for our blessings and know that there are people who don't have as many blessings as we do. And in that context, it was kind of like our security and our safety and whatever economics we had, you know, going for us were considered blessings. I don't think that my parents definitely, you know, really bought into the blessing theology, but it was just kind of like, well, we're blessed. And so because we're blessed, we have to help others. When I started to mature in my, my spiritual life in the, you know, my late teens, and I felt like I wanted much more involvement in my church, a sense of community and meaning and faith was really strong in that pull to, to my Catholic church and just to my Christian identity as well. So I had moved when I was about 19, so I didn't have an immediate sense of community. And so I explored other faith traditions looking for that sense of community and kind of came back to my my Catholic faith and community with a deeper sense of who I was because I explored out of that. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, but then in that exploration, I also recognized that exploring others and, you know, and kind of understanding differences was a real part of my awakening. What I came to realize is in the church, the beauty of the Catholic church is that we are universal and we're all over the world, but we share this, you know, this unifying faith. It's expressed in so many different ways. And just in part of my growth of becoming deeper in my faith and wanting to broaden my understanding of my experience in the world, I was a lay mission helper from Los Angeles and I was missioned to Cameroon, West Africa. 
It was really kind of funny because before I went to Cameroon, they had, they had an incredible formation program. So I actually got to know more about my faith and the church and theology and a mission and all of these things. And it was at that point that I was wondering about being a sister. I hadn't been around sisters most of my life. And I only knew them through stereotypes. And I felt really <laughs> called to serve, you know, as a, I just felt called to serve in the church. And you can do that so easily as a laywoman. Yeah. So when people in church would say, well, do you want to be a sister? I was like, no, I want to be a lay missionary. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and there's so many opportunities to do that. So I was formed as a lay missionary and I loved it, but it started to kind of ring a bell for me of, you know, what would it be like to be a sister? What's the difference between the life of, you know, the laity and the call to holiness and that of being in religious vows? And so I was missioned to Cameroon where I just took a deep dive into that question. Mm -hmm. And for about three and a half years, lived it. I worked very closely with Cameroonian Franciscan sisters and lived as a lay woman in that environment. And it was just the best time of my life, but it was also this really distilled discernment where I kept going back and forth. Like, no, I'm called to be a lay person. I'm called to be a sister. What I started to realize in that discernment was a difference in the lifestyle of the people I lived and worked with from that at my home in the United States. And I just remember thinking, why is it that I'm in one of the better hospitals in Cameroon and it's considered one of the better hospitals. And at that point, they had like two oxygen tanks for a 350-bed hospital. And I thought, this is just crazy. And there were children that were dying that all they needed were antibiotics. And I had left a ministry and I, I had, I called it a job at that point, but I left a job where, you know, it's like the cap was pulled off of antibiotics. You threw them all away because our standards for, you know, practice were so different in the United States. And so it just started me to have serious questions about what is going on with justice and where is the justice in that? And, and it gave me a firsthand experience of the disparity in resources, in healthcare, in living conditions, in education, in food. I mean, it just, it just opened my eyes and my world a lot. So that was a huge formation for me in that experience. And then during that time, as I'm struggling with kind of like, God, how can we live in a world where we consider ourselves blessed and we throw away medical equipment that could help, you know, these children live here. And they think that they're blessed because there was this joy, right? There was this oh. joy with people that I was living with. It was just the question that I could, I, I still haven't come to resolution with. I don't think I ever will. I hope I never will, because I think it's one of those questions that should just continually make us uncomfortable. But what it did do was draw me closer to how to live the life of Jesus more radically um, and in community. And so living a life of the vows became much more of a curiosity and an attraction for me. And then definitely living with sisters who were very purposeful in their mission of care and justice and gospel living. So yeah. that is my not very short response to <laughs> no, of my vocation. Yeah. To no, and I know and to, the, to religious life. Right. And there's, I mean, certainly many more chapters and ways that you put things that you could have expanded on. You've kind of landed with the vows though, is the thing that attracted you in. And for the listener who may not be familiar with 
what the vows are that we take as Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. Could you kind of define them and and talk about what was what is attractive and how, why does that seem like a radical form for you? Yeah, I think that right now I I continue to ask myself that question. <laughs> it wasn't just you know twenty five years ago. You know, as Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. We live three vows. We vow to God through our community, the vow of poverty, of not owning, you know, personal property, that of consecrated celibacy, and also of obedience. And I think that our growth and understanding and our understanding of God and relationships with God and each other are just kind of filtered through those vows in and out. It's like this almost circular motion, I want to say, but it's more of like a, a, a number eight or something. So for first of all, poverty, you know, we vow poverty and you and I are right now communicating in a very privileged way with each other. You know, we both have a screen in front of us. We both have electricity. This is going to go out to people who have the privilege of accessing such luxury as a podcast on spirituality. It really is a gift. How is that poverty, right? So, I mean, so these are, these are bigger questions. At the core level, not having ownership is the key piece for me. Does this own me <laughs> or what does own me? And at the core of that is where am I totally dependent on God? You know, it's, it's not really my works. It's not my ownership. You know, St. Francis of Assisi was famous for saying, I own nothing but my sins. Oh. And so that idea of not appropriating things for ourselves, which could mean my computer, it could mean my car, it could mean my bed, it could mean my success in my job, it could mean my health, all of those things. Well, right? and also like your gifts, right? Your brilliant ideas. So for me, I mean, if I can just jive off of what you're saying here, I totally, I think for me, part of the energy of living this life of vowed poverty, I just want to say, like, when it comes to the vow of poverty, for me, it's, it, it is the material wealth that we're sharing and not taking ownership or claiming anything. And yeah, there is like an incredible abundance of resources that we have to share. And it is also about sort of the giftedness and the passions. And, and that's overlaps with the vow of obedience for me. And even the vow of solidarity, right? And how, be, even though I may have this great ability or talent or brilliant idea, and you have them all the time as well, like we do, you know, the spirit's working in our lives. We can't get attached or even like stubborn or like, like, you know, sticking our heels in the sand because we are so determined that this project or this idea must go the way we envision it. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. It's really, it is that non-attachment. It's that non-appropriation that is like, it, it's core because without that, you, you cause a lot of suffering, you know, for yourself. <laughs> it's just, it, Living with holding things loosely and that with that attitude that everything is gift gives us the opportunity to live with joy. And um, always, I, I mean, I'm grateful for the gift of remembering that no matter how non-attached I am, I'm still living a privileged life in comparison to 98% of the world. That's right. You know, yes. You know, yeah. so that helps us to be humble, I think, I hope. 
there's a lot more growth in the humility of that and, and growth always in what we're not attached to. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So this, the vow formula in the, the committed life of a Franciscan sister that is centered on community and prayer and service through, and through the lens of poverty, self-esteem, obedience, obedience to God, to God, to each other, not being so committed to one partner, one person, but really loving all that come into our lives and being more community-minded. This has given you a lot of life and energy, and it's helped you to discover more of your passions, right, as your life has unfolded. Your path has been very interesting. You went from being a registered nurse <laughs> and religious <laughs> to becoming an acupuncturist and then setting up a community care clinic. And now you've, you've been a servant leader for just about four years as the elected leader, the president of Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. So all these things have been unfolding and discoveries for you. And I've observed how your passions have become even more powerful and significant and greater offerings. So what have you noticed in your life and how as, as you pivot and change and shift and grow, you come into a greater like crystallization of your identity as I lean? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that as a Franciscan sister, the focus of our life is Christ, yeah. right? And we live that focus through community. You know, we, we serve that focus through our ministry. We share that focus in love, you know, in celibate loving. We don't own things because we want to be completely, you know, transformed into Christ. So I think that my major pull or the direction has been consistently, I mean, I hope growth in Christ, you know, in understanding what is the life of Christ, because it was the life of community that drew me to religious life. And through that, I discovered Franciscanism and Franciscan spirituality. It was like, wow, God, I didn't even know this existed. But, you know, so I took a step into that and that just opened the doors to this wonderful understanding of this theology, right? Of goodness. And that, that Christ is our brother, Jesus is our brother. And that came into the world because it was so good. And I was like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? Can this get any better? And then boom, you know, I, you know, there's another revelation in this Christian pilgrimage of just going deeper and, and getting more. This thing is, is that it also, um, you know, it takes a letting go at the same time. So you're given this gift of understanding, but you have to not only let go or unlearn something that you've come to cherish. It usually means letting go of, you know, what was a great gift and that just doesn't serve anymore. And I have found that to be the case in, in the way that I serve. So what you didn't mention is that, you know, you started that I was a nurse and I was, but before, that I was like a really good waitress. Oh, <laughs> you know, so I went from waiting tables, and I think that's important. I keep going back to my waiting, my waitress, and the skills and the way that that way of serving mm. has given me so many different skills and gifts as I've gone into different environments. And continued my ministry of service in a lot of different ways. So I went from 
you know, serving people their food to helping to serve them with health and health care to helping, you know, to serve with education, you know, so that they could, you know, when I taught nursing, then again, going into serving through, you know, through acupuncture and a clinic. So all of this is really a servant focus. And I think my walk in Christ, hopefully my journey in Christ has just been to see how that's done differently. And it's been very helpful for me so that I don't get too attached to the service and maybe a degree that's involved in a particular type of service or a certain niche. It has to really be the call for me. And, and Christ just called, Christ is all over the place. And so I'm just following Christ where I'm being led. So, but service is, has been poor. And, you know, I'm from a working class background. I own my working class, you know, heritage and I'm blessed with that gift so that my focus of whatever ministry I might have is, is, is service. And I feel like I've just kind of grown up in that. Ah, ah. Yeah. So I know one of the things you're especially passionate about is religious life in the church. And we've been talking about NISM and service and, and the vows, but, but I'd love to hear you expand on what you understand the life to be. And much of our correspondence and our work together, I sometimes see you capitalize the life <laughs> and, and say that that's what this makes, that's what we're committed to together carrying the messiness. <laughs> and I don't even know what the life is. <laughs> I have to be completely honest with you because I think that the light, well, the life is Christ. I'm going to go right back to it. You know, yeah. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And I think that we're in an age where we are so drastically changing and so rapidly changing. So society is changing, our church is changing, and religious life is changing. So there are these, these pieces of tradition that remain. And so the vows remain. How those vows are lived out looks so different you know, in so many different cultures and communities. And so I think that we're at a stage where we really don't know where religious life, you know, how it's going to be, you know, moving into the next phase. You know, I was at the Union of International Superior General meeting in Rome in May, and we had an audience with Pope Francis. And we brought up this question because around the whole world, sisters are saying, it's not what it used to be. That is what we know. And he's saying, yep, <laughs> it's certainly. And we don't know what God's doing with us. And there's a huge gift in that, but there's a big challenge in that as well. So there's not this certainty. And, and Pope Francis said very clearly, what we cannot do is go back to only what we know, because that leads us to rigidity and I think the quote that he said that's been used a few different times is, the last thing the world needs right now are frozen nuns. <laughs> we don't need to be stuck in what we know how to do if that is no longer what the world needs or the church or what, we, what, what our gifts are to offer the church. And so, you know, the, the antidote to that that he said was pray. 
Right. You know, pray and risk, move out there, be innovative, do new things. Life, and he says this all the time, life is on the margins. That's where Christ is just thick, you know, with people who are in need and who are having their needs met in new ways. And, and so that, I think that if we look at the just the world and the dispossession that's happening, and the poverty that's increasing and the crises that's happening, the world certainly still needs religious, right? That it doesn't need religious as religious were 50 years ago or even 20 years ago. I think that God is always calling us into something new. At the core of our Christian faith is the Paschal mystery. And we have to be willing to go into a place where, you know, I think we're going to lose ourselves in this in order to you know, to be reborn. So yeah. I don't know. There's a lot of passion on that. There's not, there's unknown. And, and you know, Sister Carolyn Heil, so a big shout out for one of our own Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. I think that we were just in a conversation the other day and we were talking about, you know, faith and what's the, what's the opposite of faith. And, you know, the first answer that people often go to is fear. But she said, no, it's not fear, it's certainty. You know, if you're certain of something, then where is the room for, for God in that? And so I, I find a little bit of comfort and hope in that of like, yeah, God's just leading us into something we don't know. And there's the growth in faith for us. That's, that's promised if we can step into it. Wow. What I do find it's important though, don't you think this is the case? Because you and I talk about this stuff for like hours. Like you and I can go on and on about this. I mean, people are probably already like going on to their next podcast and you and I are talking about the life. There's, there's life in that. Don't you think like there's energy, there's love, there's hope, there's joy, there's, there's a, a, a desire to risk, you know, and that, that's yeah. holy. Yeah. It's holy, holy ground. I, you know, just so aware that what you're naming is a the idealism, right? It's true. This is the reality that like hangs over. But then we get into the nitty gritty of like, but we still have to show up for that meeting and we have to make a plan and we're going to host this event. And oh, so-and-so is resisting this idea and they're complaining and there's a protest happening too. (laughs) You know, but yet on the other hand, you're like, no, this is actually what God is calling us to. And come along into the uncertainty. No, 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 I need, I need definition. I need clarity. I don't, how can I get behind you and follow you? If I don't, I can't tell you where you're bringing us. And I can't tell if this is even going to work. So I don't know if you want to speak a little bit about the complexities of uh, structures and systems when it comes to leadership in this life that is so full of uncertainty. I mean, I think what you're describing is absolutely true for religious life, but it's also the gospel life. It's anyone who's a disciple of Jesus and is committed to really doing what is God's will and not what they want with their life. They're going to be living this life of uncertainty day by day as well. Yeah. And it it is really the life of faith, isn't it? And it's, it's messy. Hey, little plug for messy Jesus business, but it is, you know, and it's one of the things that I am growing in appreciation for the complexity of my faith, because it is where you, you hold the joy 
and the pain. When you say, oh gosh, you know, to have this great party, no one else is showing up to do the planning. So I got to cook and I got to clean before everyone else comes to have fun. And then, you know, <laughs> then I have to clean up after. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully I'm able to have some of that fun, right? Yeah. The idealist, the idealist is saying, well, of course I've got the house so I can host it and things. But the realist in us is going like, yeah, people are just really not picking up their slack. You know, they're slacking off a little bit. I think that's totally real. And, you know, in our faith, we've got so many opportunities to recognize that that is true. The weeds and the wheat, the death and the life. It happens at the same time. It doesn't happen according to our schedule. It doesn't happen according to our plans, but it coexists, you know, it coexists in Christ. And so right now you and I, we talk about the the beauty of our Franciscan sisters of perpetual adoration. And at the same time, we're looking at, you know, restructuring and we're looking at, you know, so many of our sisters just saying like, you know what? I can't even make it to some of these meetings because I just don't have the energy. And we want, we, you know, we're like, wait a minute, we want to take it personally. And it's hard not to feel like, oh, we used to be able to do this, but is that appropriating? You know, is this my will? Oh, it could be so good. I know that I throw such a great party. Why can't you come to it? Or is this, you know, God's will where Jesus talks about going to Jerusalem all the time? Gospels. <laughs> That was his rhythm the whole time. He was always heading to Jerusalem. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of Jerusalem, part of the complexities of this time of change in the church and the world more broadly is the increasing consciousness of how much harm religious institutions such as our own church have caused. You are greatly involved in the truth and healing work related to. Catholic Church's boarding schools here in the United States. Can you please share what that work is, what what it means to you, and and what what you're discovering about how the gospel is alive and that work of repentance and reparations and and shifting? Yes. Well, I was called into this ministry of historical truth and healing when in 2020 I received a communication about, you know, someone who wanted to do a story about St. Mary's school in Odena. And I did some pretty quick reading and realized that St. Mary's was an Indian boarding school in Odena. And it was one of our oldest missions Odin is in Wisconsin, and it is the reservation of the Bad River Band, the Chippewa tribe or Chippewa, Chippewa tribe. Yeah. So I have to say, like, I was really clueless of what the history of Indian boarding schools were in our country, certainly the impact that they had on the Native American population, not only in the United States, of course, in Canada, they had gone through a truth and healing commission that started in the year 2000. And they're still, you know, living in discovering more truth and working toward more healing. And that was more in the media recently when Pope Francis went to make a personal apology. Our school was started in 1883 and it closed in 1969. 
And our influence in Odena is significant. We, we had a school there. We also taught in Ashland. And so in the North Woods of Wisconsin, our education, our educational system had a lot of impact. And not all of it was received as gift and as purely educational. What we've come to realize is that the Indian boarding school era in the United States was a time when religious and governmental schools targeted Native American children as a form of forced assimilation. And it was in compliance with federal policies around education. And the federal policy was really to eradicate the culture of Native Americans and ultimately to um, dispossess them of their land. We had a huge settler population that was moving west, and it was considered the, quote, Indian problem, unquote, that was impeding settlers to land. And so what they found was, instead of going to war with them, because there was a military component of this federal policy, And it was expensive. You know, war is expensive. You probably talked about that on your podcast. (laughs) It's expensive now, and it was expensive then. And William J. Pratt, who was a military man in his history, also came up with a pilot program and said, you know, we spend X amount of money per Indian that we kill through the military, and we could decrease that amount if we used it with education. And what we can do, and this is the quote, is we can keep the child but kill the Indian. So it was systemic policy that was to eradicate the culture. And really, you know, really it was it was a genocidal policy that the church was complicit in. And so part of the work that we're doing in our truth and healing part of the painful work is recognizing the difference between intent and impact. You know, none of our sisters had any intent of having the impact that they did on this end. Now we're hearing, you know, as we're in more conversation with people, we're recognizing how complex this is. You know, there are, there are people who go to St. Mary's mission, the church, which is still active now. And our sister Rosalind Heil is, ministering there as part of our trying to cultivate a a relationship of healing with the people in Odena. We find that there are, you know, very faithful Catholics who who go to church on a regular basis and who have, have shared with us that the education they received and the shelter that they received really was an important part of their life. And we're, we're grateful when we hear that. And we hear other stories about other experiences in that school. And those are stories that cause us to pause at the very least, to listen, mm-hmm. and then to really move into, into the work of, of truth and healing. That takes the work of justice. We're just in the beginning stages of this, which we call confronting truth. And it is listening to the stories that we don't usually listen to, listening to the stories that we don't author, and just holding those stories, believing what we're hearing, even if it's different from our experience, believing what we're hearing and trying to to come to terms with that for ourselves so that we can move into 
but to a point where this can be a relationship of healing, where we can contribute to the healing that we obviously, we contributed to the harm. Yeah, yeah. And healing is different from than reconciliation. Definitely. In fact, they, we usually, as we're talking about this, we don't talk about truth and reconciliation. You know, it's insensitivity to many who we've talked to from, you know, indigenous peoples all over. And they say that, you know, reconciliation implies that you had like a healthy mutual relationship in the first place. And, and that, that concept is rejected by many with who, who, who have been impacted by the Indian boarding schools in the United States. So what we look for is truth and healing and really what needs to happen in between the truth that, you know, confronting the truth and coming to the healing is the justice piece. And that's, that's when we talk about, you know, repatriation. That's when we talk about reparations. That was when we, we talk about kind of the work around making the relationship more right. Um, could you just briefly define reparations and repatriation? Those ones, yeah. No. <laughs> You're asking me to define things. I just... <laughs> well, repatriation would be, the repatriation would be returning mm. to the original owners, ancestral ancestors. So that can include, okay. it could include their bodies. So if, you know, so we talk about Indian burial grounds. We talk about grave sites that, you know, a, a big, a big part of, a big part of the pain it, currently, I mean, there's a lot of pain involved, but currently a big part of pain is that, you know, the Indian boarding schools forcibly separated the parents from the children and sent the children like across the country often yeah. to different schools. And there, people, a lot of children died in these schools. Now, there are stories of children dying from starvation, from being beaten, but there were also epidemics. You know, the people got sick. They didn't have the same kind of health care so that we know that there were children who died and we don't know where their bodies are. Their families don't know where their bodies are. So in Canada last year, it is, it is, it's just, it's, yeah, heartbreaking is the right word for it. So in Canada, as they've discovered hundreds and hundreds of graves at these schools, that's part of repatriation, you know, repatriating just the children themselves, <laughs> you know, the, yeah. the bodies themselves. It also includes, you know, artifacts, you know, cultural items and, and land. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> and reparations, on the other hand, would be like an, an example would be giving funds to 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 the people who have been harmed to the descendants of of those who were harmed to help them restore their lives sort of in in, in a way like paying a fine for for what we did in the past yeah i like to think of it as making amends uh-huh. yeah <laughs> you know and so it's because there is this piece in some conversations where it's like, you know, you just don't get to write a check and then feel better about, you know, what has been done. You don't get to just give a grant out and then, you know, you're on a clean slate. So 
the reparations, you know, and, and you see this in, in some of the reparations that the Jesuits have done in their, you know, schools. I mean, it is, it's, it's a relationship of talking with ancestors of, I mean, I mean of talking to some of that, right. Yeah. Like, how do you, how do you even begin to, to say, is there a monetary value of this or, or what else is around with that? So it's a way of making amends and finances are a part of it, but it's not just finances. Oh, Wow, thank you. Well, Eileen, we've talked about so many things and I we might have to have you back on the show because I know you have a lot more wisdom and knowledge to share with the audience. But let's let's just review and wrap it up by noticing that we've explored uncertainty and the mess of uncertainty in a lot of ways in this conversation. And we've explored how living the gospel and being faithful to Jesus and following him and living a life in Christ means really entering into spaces where we are abandoning control and we're at the service of others, trying to create healing more than harm. What else do you have to say about how living the gospel is messy? Well, I like to always think about how when my day starts, I've got all these great ideas of how I'm going to do something good today. (laughs) Sometimes I even have it in a checklist format. And at the end of the day, that checklist is simply untouched. But I go back to, to something that, that I learned when we were on the Camino together. And, you know, and I always just think that Christ is the way and whatever is in the way is the way. So that helps me get, get through the messiness. I often do it loudly and I, I can get a little snarky with that as well, but that helps. <laughs> Thank you for, for admitting that. It, it helps me feel good because I feel like in my relationship with God, I'm getting in a lot of arguments. Sometimes I'm throwing little temper tantrums. I don't want to do what you say, God. I have this idea. <laughs> After all, we must submit ourselves over and over to Christ's will. And in that, we get to discover phenomenal freedom and joy. Oh, phenomenal. Eileen, thank you so much for coming on Messy Jesus Business. Thank you for having me. This was great to talk with you, Julia. Oh, thanks. Messy Jesus Business is produced and hosted by me, Sister Julia Walsh. You can find us online at MessyJesusBusiness.com and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. If you like what you heard, please mention our podcast to your friends and followers. And if you'd like to help us continue our work, we'd love to have your support via Patreon. From the bottom of our hearts and the middle of the mess, thank you. Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission at fspa.org. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, and I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace and all good. <laughs>